Amen. I invite you to take out your Bibles and turn to the book of Colossians, and chapter 1, and we will be in verses 15 through 23. I know you've gotten comfortable in your seats, but I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to stand once again with us as we read God's Word. Out of reverence, we're going to stand together and hear the Word of the Lord and read along with me as well. Verse 15 of chapter 1 of Colossians. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things. And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For all, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in the body of His flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation, under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let us pray. Father, we come to your word this morning, come to this time where we're going to study your word together. God, I pray, Lord, you would help us to see the true meaning of the text, God, that we would be faithful to the text, that we would worship together as a response to the text, seeing that Christ is preeminent and that all of Scripture, and even this passage specifically, speaks and points to Christ and His glory. So be with us now as we come to worship you through this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. So when I was praying about what to preach on this Sunday, I decided I would look ahead to see where we would be in our study in Exodus. And as it so happens, I'm stuck between two commandments. So kind of a rock and a hard place, so kind of a 1.5 commandment here. So I'm trying to think, what, what could we talk about? What could we hear from God's Word today? And so on the one hand, we've heard last week from Pastor Richard as he preached on the first commandment that we're to have no other gods before the one true God, the exclusivity of worshiping the one true God. And Lord willing, next week we will hear about the second commandment. We're not to make any idols. It prohibits us from making graven images to, to bow down and to, and to worship those. We cannot do that. We should not do that. So I thought about the core of those two commands. And it ultimately it's about who God is and the relationship that we are to have with God. And so today we're going to look at a passage that primarily looks at the preeminence of Christ, who is God in the flesh and who is the one that makes a relationship with God possible and really makes the worship of God possible. So we're going to look at Colossians 1, 15 through 23. And this is one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture. But before we begin to dive into the text it's always important to look at the context and specifically to look at the background information behind this book, especially because we're jumping into it. So in chapter 1, verse 1, and in chapter 4, verse 18, we see that Paul is the author of 
this letter that is given to the Colossian church. He probably wrote it about 62 AD. During this time, he would have been imprisoned. And he also would have written Philemon and Ephesians as well. But why did Paul write this? It's also too important to see the purpose of the letter. Well, more than likely, there was a dangerous teaching that was threatening the Colossian church. And so Paul writes this letter to encourage the Colossian Christians in their faith and to continue and hold steadfast. So how does Paul do this? How does he accomplish his task? How does he combat this dangerous teaching? By reminding the Colossians who Christ is, which brings us to our text in verse 15 through 17. And so you'll see the first point there. First, Paul reminds us that the church, to the church, that Christ is the Lord of creation. He begins in first, verse 15 with this statement that Christ is the image of the invisible God. Well, since God is invisible, God is a spirit, he does not have a body. What is meant by the fact that Christ is the image of the invisible God? Well, it's helpful from Scripture to understand what Scripture means when we talk about an image. What is an image and what is its function? How does it play out in Scripture? Simply put, those who bore an image represented someone else. They were a picture of this other person. They, they represented them and, and even ruled on their behalf. So our minds ought to go to Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. If you want to turn there, I, I invite you to do so. And there we read the account where it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Very familiar account to most of us. It's the, the uh, creation account of mankind. And distinct from all other creation, mankind is made in the image of God. And the purpose for mankind being made in the image of God is that they were to represent God on earth as they had dominion over creation. This is not a foreign concept to us. In fact, we think about corporations in America in particular and as well as other nations, they oftentimes will send ambassadors places. So we kind of look at mankind being an ambassador to, to creation from God on behalf of God. So we see these companies send people overseas or to other companies and they represent the company and their interests. We see this in our own nation as we send foreign diplomats and ambassadors. They negotiate uh, policies and treaties and, and so forth. So we're not too foreign to that idea. But there is a problem when it comes to the image now. Mankind could not fulfill this duty in its complete capacity because of the disobedience in the Garden of Eden. This caused the image of God to be marred by sin. And we see that fall in, in Genesis chapter 3. The image is marred, but we need to be careful in realizing that the image is not lost. The image in mankind of God has not been lost, though it has been severely distorted. Genesis 9, 6, Moses writes and clearly warns those who would take life, who would murder, are taking somebody's life who is made in the image of God. James chapter 3 and verse 9, James says a, a pronouncement of woe to those who would, on one hand, bless the Lord with their tongue and then in the same turn curse those who are made in His image. And he says these things ought not to be 
So, so we see the image remains there, but it's distorted, and so is its function. And so it can't be completed. It can't be lived out in its fullest capacity by mankind. But there is one who can do it. The only one who could do this is the one who is the perfect image of God, and that is Christ Jesus. Unlike Adam, Christ is the perfect image of God, and he represents God perfectly in his obedience and in every other way. For reference, you can look at Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, and see this exact same idea as the author of Hebrews writes there. Now, as a representative of God, Christ also rules over creation. Not just representing, but also rules over creation. And we see this when Paul calls Christ the firstborn of all creation. Now, for many of us, that gives us a little bit of pause. Is Paul saying here that Christ was created, that Christ was made? Well, in short, let me answer it for you. No, he wasn't. And you're going to see this in, in verse 17 as well when we get there. But this idea of firstborn carries with it rights and privileges and superiority. Think of Esau in Genesis chapter 25. What does he do? He sells his birthright. Well, what was his birthright going to do for him anyways? It would have entitled him to all of his father's possessions and authority, a place of prominence within the family. We also see this in Genesis chapter 48 when Jacob is getting ready to bless Ephraim and Manasseh and Joseph is disturbed because what does Jacob do? He switches his hands. Naturally, the firstborn should have received the majority of the blessing. He should have been the one to receive it, but Jacob switches his hand. And that makes a huge statement in Scripture. It would not have gone unnoticed. Psalm 89, 27 also gives us a good picture of what this means when it reemphasizes this idea of superiority. He writes, the psalmist does, And I will make him the firstborn, the highest king, highest of the kings of heaven. So there's a place of prominence given to the firstborn. So Paul in Colossians, when he is writing this idea, he's writing the idea that, that Christ is supreme and that he is Lord over all and has ownership over all in regards to creation, not Christ being created. So that's not what that means. Early in the church's history, there was a heresy that was condemned by the church. It was known as the Arian heresy. In this heresy, those who believed it, they, they denied that Christ was eternal. They denied his eternality. They denied his deity, that he was God. They rejected this notion. So those who held to this view believed that the Word, the Son of God, Christ, was the first created. Now we know Scripture to refute this. And I could quote this scripture and you could quote it along with me with John 1 1 in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God that's right many cults today have tried to twist this and and say that Christ was a God that he was created but we see from John's account Christ was there Christ was present at creation and beyond that he had always existed there has never been a time when the son of God has not existed so no Christ was not created but we also see this idea in verse 16 as we move through the text that things are created by Christ. All things are created by Christ. And since he created all things, he is the Lord of all things and has rights over all things. This is the same idea carried in Isaiah chapter 49, or excuse me, verse uh, 9 of chapter 45 and Romans 9 verse 20. And in this we learn that the creator has the rights over creation, not, not the other way around, not vice versa. But Paul keeps going. 
and see that Christ is not only the agent of creation, the one through whom creation comes into being, but he tells us that Christ is the goal of creation. Creation has a purpose, and that purpose is to glorify God. All things are made by him and for him. The fact, this fact right here makes a statement that Christ is God. So if you remember from last week, let's connect it back to last week. The commandment is, you shall have no other gods before me. You should not have any other gods before the one true God. But if creation is made through Christ for Christ, His worship, His glory, but we're to have no other gods besides the one true living God, it stands to reason, and we should see right there, that the only way this isn't a contradiction is that Christ is indeed God. And as God in the flesh, He is Lord of creation. And Paul keeps this idea going. He continues the idea of Christ being Lord of creation when he says that he's before all things. Christ is the forerunner. He precedes creation. Again, another refutation that Christ was created because think about it. If Christ were created, how could he be before all things? And then furthermore, how could he create them? He couldn't. It's illogical. There's no way that doesn't make any sense. And as Lord of creation, though, he doesn't only brings creation into existence, But the glorious news is that he sustains it. He cares for it. Verse 17 says, In him all things hold together. He did not create this world, wind it up and let it go, and leave everything to chances or processes that are outside of his sovereign hand. But rather he holds all things together and upholds the universe by the word of his power. Again, we can go to Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 and see that Christ is holding all things together. But let's pause for a moment and think about this on a small scale. Think about Bloomfield Baptist Church, established in 1791, so 226 years ago. Think about that. I don't think any of us were here when that happened. If you were, raise your hand. Okay. All right, good. Just just making sure. But, But we see that Christ has sustained his church, this church, through good times, through bad times, through indifferent times, through ugly times. Christ has sustained his creation. This church. But even think beyond that. Think, think, your, think about your bodies, all the processes within your body or outside in your body in this world that have to take place for us to even live. Go beyond that. Think about the orbit of the sun. Think about the moon. Think about its function and the stars. I mean, you think about it. When we sing about how great thou art, when you think about all the works his hands have made, but yet he is holding all that together. That is amazing. And as one preacher told me one time, if that doesn't light your fire, then your wood is wet. I mean, that's cause for worship, to know that my body isn't just spiraling out of control. And the universe is not spiraling out of control. That is cause for awe and for worship. So I think the practical application of Christ being the Lord of creation is at least twofold. First, we can take comfort in knowing that the one who created all things is working throughout creation and holding all things together. Second, knowing that Christ created all things should drive us to worship him and to make his name known around the world. One of my favorite quotes in all the world comes from a man named Abraham Kuyper. He's a Dutch theologian and was a, a prime minister in the, of the Netherlands. And this is what he says to remind us of this truth. There is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
And as you think about it, there's nothing that exists, nothing in the whole world, nothing in all of existence where Christ would say, that belongs to me, because it all belongs to him. And included in that is the church. In that dominion, he has dominion over the church, which brings us to our second point in verses 18 and 19. We see here that Christ is the head of the church. Paul writes, and he is the head of the body, the church. Pretty self-explanatory. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So Paul shifts his attention and thought. Remember, he's writing to the Colossian church. So he moves from the larger picture of creation to the imminent relationship that Christ has with his church. In other letters, Paul references Christ as the head of the church and the, the body of Christ being the church. You can look at Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 12. It's pretty safe to say that most of us understand the relationship between the head and the body. I mean, first, there's unity between the head and the body. The head and the body are attached. Pretty simple. Uh, and the body cannot function apart from the head because otherwise it's lifeless and it's purposeless. And second, we see that the head leads over the body. It even rules over the body. In other words, the body is to be in submission to the head in all things. We see this idea in Ephesians chapter 5 when wives are instructed to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. This submission, though, is not one of a begrudging nature. It's not one of like, oh, do I really have to? But it's a willing, loving respect. And because also this head is not some domineering head who just lords over the body and is unkind, but rather this head is supposed to be Christ-like as and nourishing and being self-sacrificing and cherishing just as Christ is with his body. This concept really is hard to deal with sometimes. And it's really hard to live out. But when we understand it properly, it's a glorious truth. It is a wonderful truth. Now, with mainstream media and a lot of people, they make jokes about the relationship of, of the head and the body and stuff too. And in particular, I've heard one where it says, you know... The man may be the head, but the woman is the neck. And she can turn the head whichever direction she wants to. And we laugh and we get a big chuckle of that. In fact, I've seen some wives nudge their husbands saying, you need to listen to Matt. He knows what he's talking about. Thus saith the Lord. And so we're, we're, we're laughing about this. But in all seriousness, that is antithetical to Scripture. It flies in the face of what God's Word says because here's the deal the body of Christ does not tell Christ our head what to do or how to reign or even what's best for the church you see in all actuality Christ as the head is the one who tells the church what she is how she is to act and what she is to do and with both his lordship of creation and his headship over the church, it really, let's get down to it, is irrelevant what we think. He's lord of creation. He's head of the church. Even if we don't recognize him as such, Christ is who he is because guess what? He is who he is. And he ain't who he ain't. He's the lord of creation. He's the head of the church. 
And so Paul keeps going. He keeps pressing in on this idea uh, about this preeminence of Christ and him being Lord and, and of creation, head of the church. And says Paul, can de- when he describes Christ as the beginning, you see, crown- Christ is the foundation for life. He's the foundation for the church. And this is due to the fact of what Paul calls him as the firstborn from among the dead. And again, this idea of firstborn carries with it superiority. It's not that Christ is the first person to ever be raised from the dead. In fact, we can look at a few examples where the widow of Zarephath's son, the Shunammite son, you can look at Lazarus, you can look at Jairus' daughter, you can look at Eutychus, and there are many other people. They were raised from the dead. So what is it that separates their deaths and resurrections from Christ? Well, I think there are at least a couple ways, maybe more, but at least a couple ways. All the people I mentioned that were resurrected, they're dead. They died again. See, this is not the case with Christ. See, he died, was raised by the power of God, and lives forevermore. He is not dead. He did not die again, and nor did he have to. And beyond that, unlike the others, Christ's death obtained the victory over sin and death and hell that extends to all his followers. Christ's death is what made the church. He died for her. He, Paul reminds the Colossians of this. He says that Christ died for you. He purchased you. And because of that, he is preeminent, as we see in verse 18. And the preeminence idea here is that Christ surpasses all. He is above all. He is set apart. And we see this because the purpose of Christ being the firstborn from among the dead is that he is above creation, he is above the church, and even death itself. That he is the one to, see, to be seen above all. A further explanation occurs in verse 19 of, of this idea of preeminence when we see that the fullness of God is pleased to dwell in Christ. Now, at first, when we read that, it's kind of like, what does that mean? It can be difficult for us to understand. What do you mean the fullness of God dwells in Christ? And I think simply, as one commentator put it, all that God is dwells in Christ. All that God is dwells in Christ. And so, for example, as God is glorious and holy and righteous and just and wise and above all, likewise, Christ is holy and just and righteous and wise and above all. This is a capitulation of Christ being God. It's a capitulation of Him being deified, that Christ is God. He is a deity. The the deity of God dwells within Christ as He is God in the flesh. And this pleases God, that He is God and man. Not part God, not part man, but he is God and he is man. So what does this mean for us? As Christ being the head of our church, we are to submit to Christ in all things because he is our God and our head. Everything that we do as a church and consequently as individuals, whether it's life decisions or things of the church, such as the focus and content of our worship services, the ministries of the church, and so forth, all must be directed towards the worship and service of Jesus Christ and Him alone. And that's it. You know, and when we come to worship Christ, we worship Christ because of who He is. But we also worship Christ in light of what He has done and the fact that He has reconciled us back to God. And so in verses 20 through 23, we'll see your third point in the outline, that Christ is the reconciler. And so we read, 
And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all of creation under heaven and of which I Paul became a minister so we see this Lord of creation the head of the church is the one who reconciles us back to God now the negative side of reconciliation is that means something is broken and in particularly it's a relationship that is broken remember the account of the fall of mankind in Genesis chapter 3 we see God pronounce judgment on the serpent on Adam and on Eve and there mankind is cut off from God they're separated from God because of sin Adam's disobedience affected everything, even creation. So we see this relationship broken. Where there once was life and peace, now death and enmity reign. See Romans 5, chapter 14. But you know what also is great is that Scripture tells us that creation is groaning and is anticipating something. And we don't think about creation groaning for anything. But, th- but here creation is personified in this idea that they're groaning for something. And what is that something? It is that peace and restoration that comes when Christ comes back and makes all things new. It's the vision that John has in Revelation 21 when he sees a new heaven and a new earth. The former things have passed away. There's peace, not pain. There's life. There's not death. And there, the Prince of Peace, of whom Isaiah prophesied, he is the one that reigns. All of this is only possible through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on the cross. He is the only one that could reconcile anything or anyone back to God. And again, Paul displays this picture and presses it in further as we go to verse 21 when he moves from creation to the church again. He reminds the Colossians of one thing, that they once were enemies of God. They stand opposed to God. He describes them as alienated, in other words, separated, cut off, far away. They were hostile in mind. They were doing evil deeds. And while Paul is primarily talking to the Colossian Christians, guess what? We need to listen up because that's us. That is us right there. We see this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world. Well, that would make a nice greeting card. Think about it. What a hopeless situation. You're cut off. You have no hope in this world. But that's the good thing is it's past tense. But yet, without Christ, we are enemies of God. If we do not follow Christ, we are at enemy with God. There is no cordiality there. We're enemies of God. But the good news is that God, through His Son, Jesus Christ, brought about peace and reconciliation on the cross. Believers have been reconciled back to God. We continue in that passage of Ephesians. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. He has made us one and broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. So making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing hostility. Verses 13 through 16 of Ephesians 2. 
We were far off. We were not part of God's family. In fact, we hated God and opposed him, even if we didn't know it. The reality is we're not only blind, but we're blind to our blindness. We don't even know we're blind. We're groping around in the darkness. But Christ abolished that hostility and that enmity by his blood. But we can't miss something here when we see that this speaks of Christ's humanity because he had to take on flesh and he had to die on the cross and he had to pay the the penalty for our sin. It was his sacrifice that satisfied the wrath of God that was upon us, making peace with God a restored reality. You may not realize this, but we sing about this every Christmas. We sing about our reconciliation with God every Christmas when we sing Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Listen. Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Glory to the newborn King. Peace on earth and mercy mild. God and sinners reconciled. But you know, there's this fourth verse that eludes us because a lot of hymnals have cut it out. But listen to these words. Come, desire of nations, come, fix in us thy humble home. Rise the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness now effaced, stamp thine image in its place. Second Adam from above, reinstate in us thy love. Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. And so when we sing about Christ's birth, we are singing about our reconciliation, the reconciliation between God and man because his birth always was pointing towards the cross. And the cross is the foundation of our reconciliation. And that reconciliation will be completed in its entirety, in its fullness, when Christ returns and makes all things new. The effects of Adam's sin will be erased. The image of God completely restored. This is not possible without Christ. Only Christ can do this. And you see, our our reconciliation is not just a gift to us, but it also has a purpose, just as creation was made for him, And through him, it also, our salvation was accomplished through him and for him. We've been saved so that we can be presented by Christ as holy, blameless, irreproachable gift to Christ. This idea can be seen again in in the picture of marriage in Christ and the church in Ephesians 5. He is sanctifying us through his spirit, making us more like him. We, his bride, are being cleansed and prepared for the marriage supper. And not only did God create mankind for his own glory, but he is redeeming a people from every tribe and tongue and nation for his glory. Created for his glory, redeemed for his glory. But we need to know something else about our reconciliation. It is displayed through perseverance in the faith. Paul gives this qualifier in verse 23 when he says that those who hold fast to the one true gospel, those, they will not shift from the hope of the gospel, those who will endure... Well, how do we know if we endure? Well, in the end, you will have endured. But good chance that if someone's not enduring now, they're not going to endure in the end. And that ought to cause us to be alarmed. Are we 
following Scripture? Are they following Scripture? And we must examine our lives and the lives of other people in light of what Scripture says. Now, but that is the key. We don't look at other people's lives and say, ah, they're better, worse, or the same as me. We look to Scripture to see the truth of God's Word because we are finicky, we are flaky, we are imperfect, but God's Word is steady and sure and perfect and infallible. And listen, if our lives or or somebody else's life does not line up with Scripture, we need to reach out to them in love with the truth. And we ought to have the utmost concern for them and their souls because chances are if they're not living that way, they're not living in light of Christ, guess what? Chances are they've not been reconciled back to God and his wrath remains on them. And finally, we we come to the, the end of this passage with verse 23 and we see something and we tend to gloss over it. But let's not gloss over it because Paul is writing about the gospel and he's describing this gospel and he he makes a statement. This is the same gospel of which he has become a minister. This is no small thing. If you know church history, you think back to Acts chapter 7. So Stephen is being stoned, the first martyr of the church. They're stoning him and he cries out to God and then he dies. And the next thing on the scene is chapter 8 verse 1. And it says this, that Saul approved of his execution. But it doesn't stop there because in chapter 9, we see that Paul, as Saul at that moment, was breathing threats and murder against the church. And this continues until Christ changes Saul's heart. So Saul, the chief among sinners, the slaughter of the saints, now becomes a minister of the gospel that he sought to snuff out. What power in that gospel? It's Romans 1.16. And only the gospel of Jesus Christ has that kind of power where the vilest of sinners who truly believe that moment from Jesus a pardon receives. If you remember, that comes from the hymn, To God Be the Glory. That's the kind of gospel Paul's talking about. So in terms of application, we need to remind ourselves daily that we have been reconciled back to God through Christ and by His Holy Spirit's power Endure in the faith and hold fast to the faith and remain faithful to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the overarching application is we bring it together. It it brings us to a point where we need to recognize that at salvation's core, it's always been Christ. Salvation's history has always been about Christ, who he is and what he has done. He is the central figure in all of scripture and redemptive history. It has never been about us. He is the Lord of creation. He is the head of the church, and he is our reconciler. He deserves to be worshipped and served. And honestly, when thinking about how to close this out, I could not think of any better way to close our time, to reemphasize this point, than to go to God's word in Revelation chapter 4, verse 10, and Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they, were, they existed and were created. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Let's pray. Father, we have heard your word and the gloriousness of Christ our Lord, that he is the Lord of creation, the head of the church, and our reconciler. And God, we want to respond now to your word, with your word. 
as we echo the sentiments behind Revelation chapters 4 and 5. And God, as we come to this time, may we respond as you deserve for us to respond, and that is in worship. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.